Hey, good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Backyard Professor live video podcasts. I have Dan Vogel in the house. So we have a phenomenal subject to get on with. Let's get this show on the road. Hey, thank you all for coming out tonight. I have Dan Vogel with me. We are going to discuss Richard Nixon's resignation. We have decided to cancel the show for what we wanted to do it with. What do you think, Dan? Shall we talk about Nixon tonight or shall we give our audience what they want? <laughs> Tricky dick. <laughs> hey, we can flip a coin. We could let we could do the magic and let fate decide. Hey, there you go. Fact, I've got a coin right here. I'm not. You can ask, ask the rod. My lucky penny. You call it, I'll flip it. Heads, we talk Nixon. Tails, we talk Smith. Call it. Tails. Heads, you lose. We're talking about Smith. I hope you came prepared. All right. <laughs> oh, good. Yes, I have Dan Vogel here, you oh, guys. Man. And we are having so much fun behind the scenes, we decided we'd come on and uh, have some fun with all of our audience here. Uh, tonight is really a spectacular night. I'm not sure if any of you are aware of this or not, but it is October 30th. And Dan, do you know of anything significant that happens on October 30th? Because I sure don't, other than our show tonight. Did anything no. significant in Joseph Smith's history happen on October 30th that you can think of? Probably. <laughs> Probably. I'm sure he, uh, oh, hey, earlier today in my Sunday school, I noticed a reference where Joseph Smith drinking a beer was taken out of the historical record, so he might have drank a beer on October 30th. We could go with that and call it good. The things you learn in history, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you've had a very busy week. You have uh, you have put together quite the quite the show here. Uh, quite the amount of information. Uh, what are we going to cover? Why don't you get us off the ground here and take okay. us up in the air? Well, uh, we're going to do a recap again, like I did last time. Awesome. Just to prove that I read uh, these comments. Oh, thanks, yes. everybody. Thanks, everybody, for your comments. Um, yeah, be careful what you say. Vogel's reading you, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So uh, most, I'm mostly going to focus on Cheryl and and um, uh, <laughs> uh, Nick. Cheryl and Nick's comments. Okay. So Cheryl says, I'm not sure uh, if "I see either one of them in here yet. Hopefully, they'll show up tonight." That haven't haven't seen them. I need to contact her too. So. Okay, here we go. Um, Cheryl says, did you not read in the book how we say that Joseph Smith did draw on many things, but in this book, we happen to be focusing on masonry. Doesn't mean, mean we have a meta-narrative. And yeah, that was Cheryl? That's Cheryl. Uh-huh. I think I remember that. Oh, yeah, Cheryl is here again. Hi, Cheryl. I need Welcome. a drink already. So, um, Okay, have a drink. We uh, got him some hardcore iced tea here. We're going to yeah. get fast and loose here. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Debbie Joe. Oh, hey, I got to say hi to everybody real quick. Hold Go on. Ahead. This, is, this is my routine, man. You can put your thoughts together while I'm talking. Cheryl Bruno, we're honored. Thank you, dear. We're honored to have all of you ladies, Patty Cake and Debbie Joe. Uh, Tom Miller, you're not a lady, but we're grateful you're here. Gail Caps and... I, I'm going to miss somebody and they're going to yell their heads off at me. I apologize. Mark Crispin, I'm just going on who I see right here right now. So uh, oh, where's the button? To, there it is. Oh, I can't push up the comments. Holy cow, what a rookie I am. Hey, I just got this thing barely working. We're going to have slides tonight. So anyway, welcome all of you for for being here. Um, I'm all, I love all you guys. I always see you every day and yes debbie joe i saw your comment about my uh video i made this morning with your son the film expert thank him thank you tell him to thank tell him thank you kindly boy i gotta spit it out so yeah i'm i'm picking up the skill here and uh dan has been helping me by dan produced these slides and they are just perfect. They are so good. So you guys are going to get some really good. Oh, yes. And Doug Vincent, buddy, thank you for coming on. Okay. And Ruby, Ruby, happy Halloween Eve. That's what it is, Dan. I forgot it's Halloween Eve. I knew there was something significant about tonight on a Sunday, no less. Oh, good luck with your surgery, Debbie Joe. 1215 tomorrow. Prayers coming your way. Splunky Don Cole, thank you for coming on, buddy. Good to see you again. <laughs> Look at Tom Miller's comment, Dan. I love it. Joseph Smith rocks in a hat. <laughs> oh, no, patty cake. We are both going to descend in loud laughter, so you can too. Hey, see Mother of Pearl. Welcome here. It's Wobbleave. Hey, John Rosbarski, hello. Okay, I've said hi to all you awesome people. It is time for me to shut up and let Dan take over, and then I will interrupt him as I can. <laughs> okay, now, okay, now we're official, Dan. Okay, take off, pal. All right. No, I, don't, I don't mean take off. I mean, let's go sailing. Right? You stick around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, boy. You got to watch what you say sometimes. <laughs> okay. Carol's here now, so... Uh... I'll be responding to some of her comments and some of Nick's. So, and Cheryl, we're going to have you on the show again soon, just so you're aware of it. If you're if you're up to that, I haven't had a chance to call you yet, but you're in the queue, so to speak. So, okay, Dan, <laughs> give up your. Oh, uh, Cheryl, as you recall, Cheryl said uh, that they 
uh, wrote about uh, Joe Smith being influenced by many sources, not just masonry, but they were just focusing on masonry. Uh, does it mean we have a meta narrative? Okay. And I answer yes, but according to this book, Joe Smith did didn't simply draw on masonry as one among many influences. He was a pro-Masonic restorer from the beginning. That's a meta-narrative running through his entire life involving everything he did, including the first vision coming forth through the Book of Mormon, his death, etc., etc. It wasn't just an influence. It was a major goal, according to this book. Cheryl says, of course, uh, so when you point out there is coincidence and that that is interesting, it doesn't mean you're jumping into myth making. My answer is when you assign meaning to coincidence, synchronicity, providence, you are myth making. You're not doing history anymore. Nick says, uh, oh, my God, this is hilarious. Now Dan Vogel is the expert on Jungian psychology, too. You know, unlike someone who holds a Ph.D. in Jungian psychology and actually understands Jung's oeuvre. It's not a contest for who knows the most. It, instead of issuing ad hominem, I think we would rather hear your thoughts or defense of Jungian synchronicity. As it is, we have no idea what you think about the subject. Is it a legitimate historical methodology, Nick? Tell us. Nick also says we don't draw, we don't draw on Forsberg's book because it was a terrible mess, which I, I agree with. Feel free to see my published review from when Forsberg's book came out. I think you mean the one published in Farms Review? I'm not a big fan of Forsberg's book either. Still, what I'm talking about is where he used the distinction of pure and spurious masonry, just like you to explain away the Book of Mormon's being anti-Masonic, as well as finding what he thought was pro-Masonic passages. I think that would have been worth mentioning somewhere. Okay. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Nick says, nope, we never ever claim that the words Vogel is referring to were the grand key word referring to Mason, Freemasonry or by Joseph Smith. So, this is that missing, Joe Smith was supposed to be the great restorer, and where's this uh, restoring of the missing word? Joe Smith specific, okay, this is uh, in part one, Nick had said, Joseph Smith specifically claimed to have restored the lost word. Pity Dan couldn't read clearly enough when we specifically wrote about the meeting in which Joseph Smith made that proclamation. So I looked up and I found the meeting on the page 317 of their book. And that was, uh, we'll reread that out of Clayton's journal. Um, yeah, this is what I believe Nick was trying to refer me to. 
Page 317, right? Yeah. Okay. And we read it last time, too. Okay. Um, Joe Smith spoke concerning key words. The grand key word was the first word Adam spoke and is a word of supplication. He found the word by the Urim and Thummim. It is that key word to which the heavens is opened. Okay. Okay. So there we are. Okay. And Nick, Nick, Nick is the one that said it was in the meeting. This is the okay. meeting. That, and so I was directed to it by him. And so I repeat it. And then, nope, he, he says they never, ever claimed uh, that that was the key word, the one given in Adam's prayer. Well, it's true. Uh, on um, page 346, refers to the marrow to the bone in the given in the five points, which is supposed to be a substitute for the key word. So the name is lost. So because both instances are talking about different key words, it's difficult to argue that Joseph Smith said he restored the word in this meeting, not being the Adam's prayer, and then give the other word at the five points. You can't use both of those things to say he gave it and then he lost it. Um, there's no evidence for that, which makes their meta-narrative pointless because the word is never restored. This long lost word and his whole mission was to restore this Masonic word. What happened? So that's that kind of uh, makes the meta-narrative a little pointless, pointless exercise. If that's what happened, but I don't think that's what happened. Um Nick says, but remember, folks, Dan Vogel is the real expert on Freemasonry. You know, I never said any such thing. Okay. It's not about who being an expert on Masonry. There are other things involved dealing with Mormon origins and historical methodology that needs to be taken into consideration here also. How the Freemasonry expertise on Freemasonry is being used, just the same as John Gee is expertise on Egyptology. You know, how does he, uh, how does that interface with uh, Mormon history? And it doesn't always, people that are experts in one subject don't always uh, connect that subject well with Mormonism. Um, so that's the issue. It's not a, it's not a contest. Um, Cheryl has a comment. She said, not page 317 or 346. It's a Masonic meeting where Joseph Smith bursts in and says, I have done what King Solomon, oh, yeah. Hiram Tyre, and Hiram Biff could not do. Yeah, establish the kingdom. Okay, so you're reading that as establish a kingdom rather than restoring the lost word. And there, I have set up, you see, he goes on and say on the previous page to. To where they quote that that meeting where he uh -huh. says about the key words on the he bursts into the thing and he says i've done what solomon king hiram and hiram Mabith could not do i have set up a kingdom no more to be thrown down forever nor never to be given to another people well i suppose the supposition is that he couldn't have possibly set up that kingdom that couldn't be thrown down without the restoration of that word. 
I'm just throwing. Now this is my. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's way I would. Way I, would I don't know. I can't remember what days. What page you on? I can't remember how they put. I'm well, not. I'm not trying to speak Okay. This is on page three sixteen. Two sixteen. Okay. Three sixteen. Three sixteen. That's what I said. You got to listen to what I say, not what I mean. Okay. <laughs> so at the so at the bottom. Okay. Here we go. Okay. Dimmick B Huntington. Uh, and then it goes to Joe Smith continued. So he came into the to, to this meeting, yes. And he right. says, I have done what King Solomon, King Hiram, and King Hiram or Hiram Ebif could not do. I have set up the kingdom. Yeah. Kingdom. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Where's yeah, this, where this word? Restored word. What does that have to do with anything? Well, it might be the power to help him restore the kingdom. So we got have a major confusion going on here with a major part of their thesis. So your main complaint is they're not clear on the restoring. We're still not process. clear, and this is the third go. Okay, okay, I see. I see your. I wanted to make sure I understood your stance. I'm with you. So it's a it's a problem that needs to maybe be worked out. You know. Where is this restoration of the key word? Okay. Inquiring minds want to know. Okay. Well, I'm sure knowing Cheryl and Nick, they will deliver. Okay, good. <laughs> I'm going to make sure they do it on this show if, if that's at all possible. So we yeah. want you happy, Dan Vogel. <clears throat> I'm just uh, doing a book review. Yes. Okay, that's uh, then, idea. That's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Nick says the spellings of Hiram, the two different spellings of Hiram, are all over the place at that point, as we discussed. Yes, they discussed the spellings, but they did not mention the possibility that the cha Hiram's change of spelling changed his spelling because of a change in attitude. How do you determine they had a change of attitude, though? Well, it's just a possibility that right. the spelling of the name uh, was not to have the uh, Hiram Abiff or Hiram King Hiram or Hiram Abiff's spelling have a different spelling. Because maybe, okay. maybe there was a change of attitude, which, okay. you know, there's other evidence that points to that all conclusion also that I'll get to in a minute. Right. Um, so then Nick says, uh, Dan, didn't, didn't you claim certainty that it was a different just Miss senior back in the early Mormon documents days? So we're talking about <clears throat> the record, the Masonic returns or the Masonic dues record from the Canon Dagua. Ontario Lodge mentioning a Joseph Smith and there they state without any qualification that it's Joseph Smith Sr. <clears throat> and he's saying that did I not say that it was it was with certainty it was a different Joseph Smith back in the early uh, Mormon documents days because I mentioned it in my introduction to the Hiram Smith um, okay. listing in the Mount Moriah Lodge, 1827 to 28 records. Okay. 
So, um, so did you do that with too much certainty? Do you think is that what he's asking? No, the answer is no. I oh, said okay. it was it was unlikely to be our Joseph Smith Senior based on the residency in Canandaigua, which the record states. Ad hominem circum. This is actually an ad hominem circumstantial argument because he's trying to say, "Well, you're contradicting yourself, so you have no right to criticize us." <laughs> Still, the okay. uh, the well, method I don't of think any of this is criticism so much as just oh. a, as an analysis, like you say in a book review. What we want to do is it's good to get everybody's uh, interpretation. <laughs> where the weaknesses are, where the strengths are. It is their first book, so there's bound to be some weaknesses. We're looking very forward to seeing the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth, thirteenth, fourteenth, and fifteenth books these guys produce, <laughs> so on and so forth, you know. Hey, I love to read, and if they love to write, I, you got a reader. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so I don't see this as a, a fight so much as a, well, a review slash discussion. Is the, yeah. Just so you know, that that's my view. So anybody else is welcome to have a different view. So anyway, yeah, yeah. So keep going. This. So yeah, what's what's the next point, young man? Okay. Um, so I'm saying, um, in regard to the Just Miss Senior uh, record, the I believe the uh, method infinite overstates the evidence for Just Miss Senior as a member of the Canandaigua Lodge. Um, so Nick says, yes, they did ditto on every member in that page. So it just says ditto, 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 ditto. This is where, okay. This is where I take it out and we'll look at it. Um, so yeah, let's see if we can get this. See all those ditto marks for residents. Just right. Resident. And your red, your red arrow there is going ditto, to, ditto, yeah, to yeah. Joseph Smith, to okay. a Joseph Smith. Ditto, 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 ditto. Okay, for residents. But look over here. Look how careful he's being with the ditto marks. It's kind of blurry, but there okay. we go. If you hold it still long enough. Right. Uh, initiated you know you see other ditto marks underneath the past for dates on dates and it looks like he's being the the uh secretary or whatever treasurer whoever was making this is being careful in the other places but um so it's just they i did bring up the uh gap of Two years, people are moving around. <clears throat> uh, and there's still one out of nine chance. Okay, um, so I've got a Cheryl, I've got a comment from Cheryl, then another one I want to put up. I just want to make sure you see this. So she's saying all of the men on the record were marked as coming from Conondagua, sorry, even though it can be shown that several of them lived in different towns. And a couple of them they showed. Okay, and she says, we also don't say that Joseph Smith Sr. was definitely a member of that lodge, but that it was likely. So mm -hmm. so she's trying, she's she's saying they aren't being really, truly uh, all, it, they're, they're trying to 
go with the best foot forward on the evidence, but it appears to me like she's dealing <clears throat> in probability and not certainty also. I mean, all of us are, no matter what subject we're studying, realistically. So, so yeah, we all do possibilities. We all, you have to uh, fill in some gaps. There are always going to be gaps. The records are never complete, but it's how close the dots are that you're trying to connect. Right. Some dots are way too far away to even attempt. But um, this is on page 34, they state. A search of Mount Moriah Lodge's records has not revealed the induction of Joseph Smith Sr., but he does appear on the records of the Ontario Lodge 23. Okay. That's no qualification, no possibly, no nothing. Okay. Although they do um, eventually <laughs> mention that there are nine. Mm -hmm. uh, they mentioned my uh, early Mormon documents had mentioned that there were nine. And uh -huh. in the 1820 census, there's no Joseph Smith living in Canandaigua so that he obviously uh, moved away if, the, if that is a residence. Okay. But then they show whoever is closer is likely our Joseph Smith. So it moves from a certain statement, then it treats the uh, evidence in, in somewhat responsible way, although uh, they got the mileage a little off uh, in their chart. Here's their chart. We also got, they say the Mount, here's the chart, right? Where are we? There's the oh, chart. Yeah. 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 That's the and chart. Then, You've colored up your book as bad as I have, Dan. It's a corrected mileage, but. Yeah, Mount Mariah Lodge 123. Should be yeah. Here 120. we are. Here, my chart. My chart's than your chart. <laughs> yeah. We're having the chart contest here. <laughs> so uh, they do eventually get around to it where you, you see that there's a possibility it could be somebody else, but still they make the argument that the one that's closest is probably our Joseph Smith. Um, then um, the evidence for Joseph Smith Sr. joining Masonry is weak. Okay. Okay. Still, he's still known to be abusing alcohol. I mean, it's notorious. All the neighbors talk about his drinking. <clears throat> this so, is similar, right? It's, Quite, it's more probable, if we're talking about probabilities, right. that he did not. We don't have a record, of a, a certain record. Not, and the record that we do have is uh, so weak that you can't say with any certainty that it's our Joseph Smith. And more likely, it's not because it's too far away. You have the Mount Moriah Lodge right there. And there's no reason he would not attend the Mount Moriah Lodge. I mean, if it's good enough for Hiram, it's good enough for his father. So, um, and if Joseph Smith Sr. did join the Mount Moriah Lodge, it would have been in that same gap where uh, Hiram uh, was theorized to be, or probably 
was initiated during the gap right. in the early 1820s. Right. Anyway, so th that's the state of the evidence. Um, so then they, Nick says Hiram was specifically initiated was in the Mount Moriah Lodge, meaning Palmyra. Cheryl says in Nauvoo Lodge records, Hiram gave his home lodge as Mount Moriah Lodge, not Hogan. Um, this was actual lodge records. And I mentioned Hogan because he published the lodge minutes and discussed Hiram's membership. That's why I mentioned Hogan. My point was that Hiram joined in the early 1820s gap and then stopped. He's not mentioned in any other records until 1827, 1828 record, and then stopped again. This Hiram Smith may not be our Hiram Smith. So he may have joined in the early 1820s, but there's no guarantee that Hiram, who paid his dues in 1827, 28, is the same. Hiram, there are other Smiths listed in that same record, and there's a possibility that the Hiram listed there is a member of that those families, or with that probably one family of Smith. I think the problem here is there's just too many Smiths in the history. What we need to do is ask the Mormon leadership to clean up the historical records and make sure there's only one Joseph Smith. I'm being sarcastic. Sorry, I can't help it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, That's what they're best at is cleaning up the record, you know. <laughs> yeah. So Cheryl wants to say that they discussed why uh, jo uh, Joseph Sr. joined uh, a lodge, the Canandaigua Lodge. One was because they had more, um, they were better, more established. Mm -hmm. And the Palmyra Lodge has been around since uh, 1804. I mean, if it hasn't been established, you know, from 1804 to 1817. Um, okay, just so you know, Hiram Smith's membership, Cheryl says, is not in question. At I do. So you're missing the point, Cheryl. Okay, I just, I just <laughs> want to. The point keep is that I'm not questioning his membership. I know he was a member of the Mount Moriah Lodge, and he joined in the early 1820s. But the Hiram mentioned in the 1827-28 record is not necessarily the same Hiram, which leaves open the possibility that Hiram changed his attitude. So if he if he joined if he joined in 18 early 1820s, why wasn't he attending all these other years? Uh, he was maybe a lukewarm Mason at best. Uh, and the possibility that the other Hiram Smith is from another Smith family leaves open the possibility he never came back. So where is this great Masonic family that they're trying to portray? That's, that's the point. Okay, and then atheist apostate, not trying to put you on the hot seat. I'm just letting you know the crowd is really enjoying yeah. this conversation. What's evidence for that? What is that? I don't understand. What is that, what is that atheist apostate? Clarify that for us, yes. <laughs> I would be interested in seeing that too. I just explained. Oh, that right. it's a different Hiram yeah. Smith. There's a there's a Hiram Smith listed there before and after. 
So there's a possibility that the the other Hiram Smith. So why would he come back to Mavu? A change of attitude, just the same as Joe Smith being an anti-Mason in one. Aren't we, that, aren't we reading that into the record, though? Could you be what? His change of attitude. How do you know he changed his attitude? Because the Book of Mormon's anti-Masonic. By the best interpretation of the evidence. Okay, I just and I'm then, just he's, to... then he joined. It's the same thing as he was anti, uh, probably anti Jackson as well in the Book of Mormon. And as soon as he gets to Ohio, because uh, most of the anti Mormons are um, anti Jacksons, uh, they had to, or Whigs, they joined the Democratic Party because that was advantageous to them, even though. And they supported Jackson in the 1832 election. So political, uh, you can change, you do, you compromise in political situations depending on uh, your needs. So, and we have, uh, we have I'm many- I'm gonna throw another one at you. I'm gonna throw another one at you. Go ahead, read it. Dan would have Hiram join the logs, then leave the logs, then come back again. Yeah, why not? Isn't that so, in line with the narrative? Hiram was caught up in uh, in the anti-masonry of the time. I'm not the one wrestling the evidence. Everyone at the time, and even now, all the scholars agree that it's uh, the Book of Mormon's anti-masonic. Only the authors of this book and Clyde Forsberg believes uh -huh. that it's pro-mason and it's. Uh, uh, spur, it's only attacking spurious masonry. That's wrestling the evidence to prove the point. It's easier. Occam's razor, like I mentioned last time, will show that uh, Joe Smith contradicted himself. There's no, nothing wrong with contradicting himself. That's what, when, I, when I talked about the idealist fallacy, that's people that can't uh, uh, allow for contradiction to exist, they have to harmonize uh, that there has to be a, ra a rational consistency in a person's life and humans are not consistently rational. But the assumption that humans are consistently rational and that they wouldn't contradict themselves and using just this contradiction to avoid the contradiction commits this idealist fallacy. Okay. So, uh, yeah, Joe Smith contradicted himself on, uh, you know, eternal salvation, on, uh, you know, marriage, uh, you know. Okay. Name of the church <laughs> has to be after Christ, and he changed it to Latter-day Saints. But he's not as bad as Russell M. Nelson is right now, so <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> So there's Cheryl's new comment. You're holding so tightly on to the idea that the Book of Mormon is anti-Masonic that you can't see the other side. What I mean, I'm, not, I'm not trying to have an argument here or anything. Yeah. I'm just, I'm letting you, you know, I'm going to have Cheryl on so that she can present her full case. Yes. And then you can be in the I'll chat. I'll be there listening. Awesome. That's what we're hoping. This is what we love is to have all sides present their ideas. Yes. So anyway, exactly. all right. Okay. Okay. So now we'll move on a little bit and let her have her opinion about my motives. Um, well, she's got another thing I'm going to let her have too. So, 
<laughs> so that's two of but them. My point. Uh, Nick says, considering Justin Sr. died before Nauvoo Lodge established, why would they talk about his initiation at that time? So I mentioned that, that we didn't have a similar situation like we have with Hiram. So the okay. point is that we don't have that added information. If we didn't have the Nauvoo Lodge, would we really know the Hiram was a Mason, you know, in in the Mount Moriah Lodge, just by that one higher mention of Hiram? And we know that there's at least two Hirams, you know? So we'd be in the same situation. We, we'll, we would be in the same situation with Hiram as we are with this Joseph Smith mentioned in the Canandaigua record. Okay. That we would have one out of two, maybe, you know. Right. Um, Nick says, uh, notice how Vogel transforms clearly labeled possibilities into definitive claims so he can then ridicule. My point is not to ridicule. Okay. And if he hears it that way, if he hears it as a ridicule, he won't be open to criticism. Um, th so this refers to the Elder G. Smith uh, referring to Smith family tradition speculation that Alvin's lap desk contained architectural tools and speculation in uh, Method Infinite that instead it could have contained the implements of masonry like a compass, square, level, mallet, etc. Everyone gets that it's a speculation, okay? I didn't question, I know it's a speculation. My point was that it was unnecessary and wild speculation beyond reasonable, trying to make Smiths as much Masonic as possible. So they're trying to create this uh, Masonic Smith family, you know, that they're totally immersed in it and, you know, to carry their meta narrative through the Book of Mormon, you know, and on beyond. Um, so sometimes the dots are too far. Uh, he, uh, the next comment, Cheryl's comment is similar, ridicules Eldred Smith's claim that the plates fit in the box, but the authors do not claim this at all. I never said the authors claimed the plates were in the box, but Eldred G. Smith claimed it. So, uh, you build, Method Infinite builds the argument about Masonic implements on family tradition, which isn't reliable. That's why I mentioned the plate. The, the plate story comes from the same family tradition, and we know that Plates cannot fit into the box. So you're relying on Elder G. Smith's uh, either. It could be a speculation on his part or family tradition. Let's say it's family tradition. It's, it has the same validity as the, the plates in, in the box. And then you build on that some speculation that, oh, it's really uh, Masonic implements. That's just like going a little too far with speculation. The, the dots are too far apart. So that's why I mentioned it was the eagerness, 
that the authors have of of uh, um, gathering what they think is evidence for their thesis. Okay, um, just so you know, then that ties in Cheryl's last comment. If we okay. didn't have the Mavi Lodge, we would not know about Hiram, but we do have the Mavi Lodge record. So, yes, she's saying we do have it, that. Evidence. It sounds like she's just not getting it. Well, she's letting you know that your speculation that if we didn't have it, we wouldn't know is beat by this evidence. I think well, that's yeah, and, and I'm trying to show how weak the evidence is for just Miss Senior and that we only if we didn't have that record see this is this is uh hypothetical so she can get my point um, okay. and the point is that if we didn't have the Hiram Smith record we would be in the same situation as we are with just the with Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith senior in Canandaigua okay and if we had a record for uh, a Nauvoo Lodge record for Joseph Smith senior we would be on maybe more sure ground, but still, I would still look to the Mount Moriah Lodge uh, okay. in the gap of the record where Hiram is supposed to be. That's where I would look. Um, okay. So, yeah. but still, I want people to understand the state of evidence that we have, because I believe it's being overstated. Um, okay. It gets quite certain with some people uh, out there on the internet, especially. Um, so I point out the weakness, and so that maybe we can all keep this in mind and learn uh, more sure. about. Maybe Joe has a great comment too. She says, "Gail, I cried after my master's thesis defense. Everyone was so critical, even though I passed. Then yeah. I realized that this is what historians do." They criticize each other worse. Debbie Joe, just for the record, and you already know this. I know I'm not saying anything new. We've got Geoplanet Jane here, as she'll verify it. Scientists do the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> that, why there is skepticism out there up front. So yeah, it, this is the this is our human process of learning, I would propose. So and we yeah. all know uh, things, we all have different strengths. Sure, absolutely. That's why we come together for yeah. YouTube videos like this. Yeah, yeah, baby. I actually have become functional in society now that I'm doing YouTubes, and we can thank Radio Free Mormon. I saw him on here earlier, so welcome, Radio Free Mormon. So anyway, and all the rest of you. So yeah, I'm just pointing that out. That's that's cool. Okay, I, I think it's awesome. Um. So um. Okay, I can't skip that. Okay, my last one. <laughs> uh, Nick says, uh, Vogel seems to be confusing evidence for absolute certainty. You can say there is sufficient evidence to be certain, but where there isn't absolute certainty, Vogel goes to no evidence. Okay, which is, so you have no positive evidence that Justin Sr. was ever a Mason. All you have is a one in nine possibility, which not terribly good. This is only possible proof. This is possible proof, not probable proof. 
which there's a fallacy called the fallacy of possible proof because historians are required to build a probable case. Um, you need probable, I say, there is more reason to doubt that Joseph Smith in Canandaigua is our Joseph Smith than to believe that it is. I have, I have eight reasons. They have one. Uh, yet you state that he was without, you state this without qualifications, which I just read. All right. So if everybody's ready, I'll move on to um, page 40 of their book. Well, thank you for taking a few minutes opening up to at least discuss some of the comments so so that we know that you're not just ignoring them you're not you're not trying to talk in the dark you are cognizant of the uh we know there's going to be differences here and that's fine because there never has been very much agreement and similarities with this subject of freemasonry and mormonism ever in the first place so no this well, is we, i don't think we've known as much as we know now about the subject actually i i agree yeah yeah. And that's the whole purpose. We, we we have the advantage of having who was it, Marba Tuckman or one of the great American historians say we have the advantage of hindsight for two centuries. Yeah, I think it was Marba Tuckman in her book. We we've we've had two centuries of of existence that we can we have a historical consciousness a, a historical context and consciousness that there's no way anybody in joseph smith's day could have possibly have had so there's always that's hey that's the fun of history that's why i majored in history i didn't get as far as you did i got my bs but mm -hmm. and it didn't stand for bachelor of science the way i did it so oh <laughs> nice little personal dig there just <laughs> self-effacing bs that's what it is <laughs> All right, let's move on. Yes. Um, so on page 40, I'll read a little bit. Um, Method so, infinite? Yeah. All right. Second, second paragraph down. Uh -huh. It starts Joseph Smith Sr., but I'm going to start a, a, in a pian or anthem to Masonic legend. The elder Smith prophesied that his son would bring forth a book telling the account of the antediluvians who, at the approach of the great flood, had deposited their substance in large and spacious underground chambers. This later account, which foretells the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, was doubtless influenced by later events, but its connection with Masonic lore is further evidence that local residents viewed Father Smith as having promoted his son as a Masonic restorer. Now, in the footnote, they have Fawn Brody, but it's actually from the Palmyra Reflector for the 14th of February, 1831, which you can read in Early Mormon Documents, Volume 2, which is online at uh, archive.org. All, all five volumes are, even the eight volumes. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Hold on. You just said something. You're saying all five of your Mormonism early documents is online available. Yeah. Where was that at? Archive.org. Yeah, archive.org. And there's a like sig signature books put it online. 
also Smith Pettit. And the eight volume, the eight volume uh, series on the, the history of the church is also there. For free. How's that? Um, okay, hold on. Hold on one more time, cowboy. Sorry, I'm going to put this up as a banner because that's oh. that is excellent. Because I can't find them in print now, especially volume one, like you were telling me a month right. ago. That's just not available. So this is big stuff. So and then your eight volume history of the church is also available yep. on archives. Archive yeah, uh, all sorts of uh, odd signature book uh, publications are there for free. Archive.org is a great place to go to find old books and all sorts of things that uh, you can't, Google is uh, only showing you snippets of. So, anyway. Oh, thank you for telling us that. That's important. I'm going to show that. Archive.org, you guys. Yeah, because the early Mormon doc, I, I call it early Mormon documents. I'm sorry. Is that what it's not yeah. quite the right title, but that's it. Uh, what, what do we do? Just look up your name on archive.org, Dan Vogel. Yeah, and then all your books will. Yeah, this is really important because yeah. some some really good historical books are very difficult to find, even on Amazon. So this is a huge hint. We can do a lot of our own research. So take advantage of this, you guys. That's awesome. Thank you. I appreciate you letting me do that. Thank you. Oh, sure. Uh, oh, okay. So yeah. that's a public service, I guess. Um, hey, Cheryl just says your early Mormon documents is an invaluable resource. I'm going to leave this up for a few more minutes, but she yeah. she's saying she has them all, and she very, very much thanks you and it, enjoys that. Thank so you. That's awesome. Now she cited she cited it liberally in their book, and they did. I can vouch for that. So, uh, all right, okay, good. So we're on a roll here. So in this uh, eighteen thirty one uh, reference to, it's actually Abner Cole, who is the editor of the Palmyra Reflector that's being printed on the same press as. Oh, the hey, is this our first slide? Pretty close, huh? Oh, yes. <laughs> 40 just, pages, 40 just pages. call. Just oh, I read it. Well, that, uh, the backyard professor is sharp. Whatever. Okay, here's what <laughs> we're talking about. at the wheel, too. Okay, so, yeah, that's the quote I just read. And, Excellent. or th this is actually the, the whole, this is that, the actual quote. So, the elder Smith declared that his son, Joe, had seen a spirit, which he then described as a little old man with a long beard, and was informed that he, Joe, under certain circumstances, eventually should obtain great treasures, and that in due time he, the spirit, would finish or furnish him, Joe, with a book which would give an account of the ancient inhabitants or antediluvians of this country and where they were, had deposited their substance, consisting of costly furniture, etc., at the approach of the great deluge, which had ever since that time remained secure in his, the spirit's charge, in large and spacious chambers, in sundry places in this vicinity. So, um, quite a description of the old spirit, huh? Yeah, and he got this from the <laughs> elders. Stuff. Well, he got this before the book was even taken out of the hill. So this is pre-1837, I mean, 27. Yeah. Yeah, 1827, 
And we have here in pre-1827, Joseph Sr. being described, or the, the from this, the inhabitants of Palmyra are to uh, conclude that Father Smith promoted his son as a Masonic restorer, just because they're mentioning chambers in the earth, and it's some kind of allusion to uh, the the arch um, royal arch mason uh, legend of Enoch in the chamber and the eight you know chambers going down to the triangle of the go the golden triangle. Um, so I'm looking to see. You know what? I erased all those. Darn it! I had some. I had some overlays of those, but I got rid of them. Sorry. Now we showed that chambered Enoch yeah. deal last time. That's so right. You guys will have to watch the previous one to see what he's talking about if you didn't see it. But it's a nine-chambered vault Enoch in the legend. So anyway, sorry to interrupt you. So uh, so we're to take this just because he's talking about a chamber in the earth and uh, having golden furniture. Well, Coles claimed that uh, Joseph Smith an anticipated the discovery of a book containing the locations of ancient treasures is supported by Parley Chase, who reported that when Smith first told of getting the book of plates, he said it would tell him how to get hidden treasures in the earth. So it's like a treasure map. Uh, it's going to locate the treasures that they hid so they wouldn't get lost. Um, Cole's mention of costly furniture is especially intriguing in light of his ownership of the hill in Manchester lot two. Prior to Joseph Sr. digging a tunnel in the hill, Joseph Jr., according to Lorenzo Saunders, could see in his stone a man sitting in a gold chair. Sylvia Walker apparently described the same cave, said that Smith reportedly claimed to receive a revelation to dig 40 feet into the hill where he would find a cave that contained gold furniture, chairs, and a table. So this is, um, of course, different than the uh, gold plates because it's actually prior to getting the gold plates. It's eight, in October 1825 or pre, before October 1825, is when Joseph Sr. was digging in that Manchester Hill on, on the Lorenzo Saunders family's uh, property. It's called Miner's <laughs> Hill later in Palmyra history. Right. Uh, and Joseph Sr. dug a tunnel into the hill looking for the, this gold furniture. And Joseph Sr. dug the tunnel in the hill. Yeah, and the hill's been uncovered. Um, you can go online. This is the Hill Camora. No, no. It's called Miner's Hill. Miner's Hill. I mean, I, it is. I, yeah, I'm yeah. with you. It's uh, about the same place in Manchester, uh, where their Manchester house was, and you go uh -huh. over the hill and across right. the street, and then you get to the Chase property, right there, and then then you go down. Uh, mm, probably less than a mile and uh, on there's a miners road it's called miners road and there's a hill there and uh um see uh kearns casey kearns and a friend of his 
from my description of the place, I took a photograph of the place in the hill um, that where the cave was caved in and mm -hmm. caved in, washed over or whatever. Um, it had been reopened uh, about 1930s. Um, Comer, the guy that owned the property then was Comer, Andrew Comer, and he opened it and then it got closed again. And, and every time it gets closed, it gets shorter and shorter because it, it washes down. But Casey yeah. Kearns and his friend uh, got permission from the owner to dig it. And you can go online and see uh, photographs of this tunnel. Oh, and I have in some of my videos. I have pictures, these pictures in some of my videos. Yeah, you're, you're still working on your, which, which, which video are you working on right now? The second one still? On Mason, Book of Mormon and Masonry, uh, apologetic uh, responses, trying to okay. say it's not Masonic. It's not anti-Masonic. The Book of Mormon is not anti-Masonic. Um, okay. So, um, so you didn't read that second slide, did you? Not, not yet. Okay. Oh, yeah, we just. You let me know. Okay. 41. You made, you, made, you made these slides, and they're awesome. So, Okay. Uh, so my comment on that hill thing and reading into it, the Enoch legend, just because it mentions chambers and people hiding treasures uh, before the flood, you know, to keep them from the flood. It's sort of like the Enoch legend, also like sort of like Josephus, you know, uh -huh. and his discussion of Enoch. Um, and there has to be some rationale for why the ancients are hiding their golden furniture and things. So right. uh, there could be just uh, uh, a natural explanation arise about what the ancients in America did and why there's tre why are there treasures, you know, and adjustment told as a treasure digger told many different kinds of stories about treasures and why the treasures are there and who dug them and who killed who and threw their body in with the treasure. You know, there was two Indians and it was, I want to find that captain. Kid kid. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, who knows how, how the story got to be told, but we know the book didn't, when it no. came out, wasn't about pre-flood times, you know, in America, but, so I wouldn't. I don't see that as uh, any clear evidence about Enoch and his plate. Um, okay. On the next page, forty-one, we have a uh, quote of Lucy Smith said that Josiah stole came for Joseph on account of having heard that he possessed certain keys by which he could discern things invisible to the natural eye. So the word keys, Joe Smith calling his treasure stone, seeing stone a key, uh, triggers the, a response from these authors that uh, the suggestion of certain keys is an important piece of information as to Stoll's motivations to, to come and hire Joe Smith. Um, yeah. The idea of keys by which certain hidden information could be discerned was important within Freemasonry. 
particularly in the royal arch rituals. Notably, later ed editors of Lucy Smith's uh, record unfortunately substituted means for keys in published versions of her memoirs, thus obscuring the Masonic connotations of Lucy's words. But are, are they Masonic connotations just because she calls it a key? Um, So later in Lucy's history, she says that Joseph noticed her anxiety because he didn't bring the plates home and said to her, do not be uneasy, mother, all is right. See here, I have got a key. Speaking of the spectacles. A revelation to Oliver Kell. Oh, yeah. So there it is. <laughs> we're a little behind on her slides. It's all, it's all good. You tell me when the next slide is. We are coordinated, aren't we? Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's important to have that key. And the only reason I knew this is because I posted it too early. <laughs> <laughs> so I now behold, I give unto you and also unto my servant Joseph the keys of this gift, which shall bring to light this ministry in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. This is a revelation to Oliver Cowdery. And the keys, the keys, again, refers to uh, translating the gift of translating uh, with the stone or stones. Um, so keys, not necessarily, uh, you know, it, to me, it shows that they're trying to a little too hard uh, with such a vague reference to link it with masonry. Okay. That's what I, that's my takeaway from it. Um, right. So uh, 43A, we should show... We're going to talk about the faculty of Abrick right now. Lucy Smith said, let not the reader suppose we stopped our labor and went at trying to win the faculty of Abrick, drawing magic circles or soothsaying to the neglect of all kinds of business. Okay. That's early Mormon documents, volume one, page 285, if you want to look that up. So, Nice. And you now have that power. All of my audience, <laughs> you have the power. Use the Google net, Luke. <laughs> so Lucy was responding to accusations that her family was lazy and wasted their time hunting for buried treasure. Of course, you know, she, she's well aware of that Herba affidavits and E.D. Howe's book and and other places. Um, much discussion has focused on Lucy's use of the phrase winning the faculty of Abrek. The authors note that while Abrek is short for Abracadabra, and actually it's the seventh line down, the magic seven line down, um, it relates to an amulet or charm to promote good health. The phrase winning the faculty of Abrek seems to have originated in a Masonic related document. Now, are you reading the uh, Method Infinite or are you reading out of Quinn? Where are you getting this? Early Mormon documents? <laughs> I'm just reading my notes. Oh, okay, okay. I just wanted to make sure I'm not- These are quick notes I've jotted down. Yeah. Um, because I know Quinn in his early Mormonism and Magic Worldview talks about the Abrak 
this yeah. year also. So, yeah. Yeah, because it's a really a magic uh, phrase. Abric is this there, is a magic. No uh, question uh, that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Isn't it interesting how being right. raised in Mormonism, we were never told this in seminary that Lucy Mack Smith herself had been discussing this. I mean, you know, we heard all those wonderful faith promoting stories from Lucy Mack Smith being such a wonderful mother to the prophet and raising him to be the spiritual giant that he was. I mean, you've heard all the fluff and pap and pablum, but never once did I hear about this until. I read D. Michael Quinn. That's just astonishing. I was well into adulthood past age 11 by the time I read Quinn, and I'm just blown away. You know, it's quite fascinating how evidence will change the historical context of everything we study. So I just had to throw that in there. You know, it makes me sound intelligent. So carry on, carry on. You're the intelligent one here. <laughs> no, I'm interested in your how you view certain things yeah it's just it's fantastically it, i will never forget reading early mormonism in the magic worldview by quinn uh yeah i vibrated i bounced off the walls i could not think for a month i was so blown away i i i instantly turned around after the month of recovering from my total culture shock and i reread it again and then i began sharing it with people and of course i got yelled at but that's the old version this is the old version i also have a second edition back here somewhere the yeah. one where he responds so, to hamblin and peterson and those guys but yeah yeah i kept the old edition absolutely so, right. so uh, i remember before the book came out mike quinn giving these uh uh, lectures at Mormon History Association meeting in the Hotel Utah, where we used to meet. Um, and it was like electrifying, you know, it's just like, <laughs> we're just hearing this stuff, learning this stuff for the first time. It was just a brand new world. Yeah, yeah, brand new world. That's a good description, yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh the originating document that I had mentioned uh, earlier here is an anonymous 1753 London publication in the Gentleman's Magazine of a claimed 15th century document known as the Leland Manuscript, which contained an interview of King Henry VI that mentioned the Masons concealing occult practices. A copy of the King's interview was claimed to have been discovered in the desk of English metaphysician John Locke after his death. It consists, consists of 12 question and answers with notes by Locke, supposedly by Locke. So mm -hmm. uh, next slide, B, 43B. Yeah, a Leland manuscript. Yeah. The Gentleman's Magazine, even. Why do we not have a Gentleman's Magazine today, I ask? No more gentlemen. Ooh, ouch. <laughs> Good argument, though. <laughs> anyway, um, to the question, what do the Masons conceal? The answer was given by the king. They concealeth the art of finding new arts. They concealeth the art of keeping secrets, the art of wonder working, which is 
miracles and the, and foreseeing things to come, like prophecy. The art of changes, uh, probably um, alchemy. The way oh, yeah. of winning, the way of winning the faculty of abrek. Oh, don't you love the spelling on that? Yeah, the man, there's too many winning, Y's. Man. <laughs> too many Y's. It's kind of hard to read, huh? So You did fabulous. I need a Urim and Thummim <laughs> to translate this. Wow. I, too bad I don't have the accent to go with you it. You know what? It would be fun to be in a spelling bee. And if someone <laughs> asks you to spell winning, spell it W-I-N-N-Y-N-G-E. And if they say, no, that's wrong, say, oh, the hell it is. I've got the reference. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm taking away from the seriousness, but hey, that that is, so I, that actually, is fascinating to see. Isn't this half the fun of looking at actual historical documents, man? Look at that. Well, there. this is quoted out of William Hutchinson's The Spirit of Masonry, 1775, which the authors do use the, all that uh, spelling. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. so uh, that's the way it appears. And um, and the the phrase winning the faculty of abrek uh, i hear is a gaelic idiom instead of requ uh, acquiring the faculty of abrek you know really? so that's Great. just a little that's just a little thing um that's interesting so 43c is this the next one yeah Hang on, I'm just about there, right there. That these, one authors, these authors neglected to mention that the Leland manuscript is widely considered an 18th century forgery, a pious fraud. Um, this is uh, Albert McKay, Mackey, excuse me, Mackey. Uh, a leading scholar, uh, early scholar of masonry. It yep. is, in fact, one of those pious frauds intended to strengthen the claim of the order to a great antiquity and to connect it with mystical schools of the ancients. Um, How interesting. Uh, so it's a pious fraud. So Claire Barris here, I have his article. Claire Barris. Uh, published an article in the Journal of Mormon History, the Leland Manuscript Forgery and the Faculty of Abrek in 2021. So it's fairly recent. Yeah, um, I'd say so. Uh, Cheryl, though, said in a Facebook conversation with Barris, Barris wasn't cited in our book because this part was written long before Claire had done any work on it. Remember, this book has been in production for decades and because the information we include is not dependent on Claire's work and it does diverge slightly as well. I believe this, this uh, was a mistake. Barris's article was quite pertinent to their discussion. While it seems the Leland forgery consists of er, the earliest use of the phrase winning the faculty of Abrek in Lucy's time, as Barris points out, the phrase appeared in both Masonic and anti-Masonic sources. Masonic sources mostly quoted the Leland manuscript without commenting, other than to note that Locke was in the dark concerning its meaning. 
Anti-Masons, however, referred to the phrase to link Masonry with ancient mystery cults and thus to the occult, witchcraft, and Satan. Mm -hmm. So the next slide. Wake up, Kerry. <laughs> uh, the Masons had a way, the way of winning fac the faculty of Abrek. This is a this is an anti Mason speaking, by the way. Um, so it's yeah, in the Republican in London. Okay. Yeah, yeah. eighteen twenty-five. Okay. Uh, they they he said that this is an example of how anti Masons looked at this winning the faculty of Abrek by which okay. I can define nothing but witchcraft or devil dealing. For we are told that the Masons were masters of the then so much dreaded occult arts or what was called the black art. Besides, art, such art a, rumors fun. <laughs> besides such a document was enough to call down the thunders of the church upon these supposed sorcerers. And we find that they were persecuted by the Bishop of Winchester, which is a matter of course, if such notions were entertained of Masons or such professions made by them as this document imports. So the anti-Masons saw it as proof that the, that the um, Mason rites came out of the mystery cults, which kind of gives you a hint to why people like George Oliver wanted to make a different lineage for, um, for masonry. Yeah. And then every, everybody was labeling everything else that they didn't like black magic and occult and witchcraft and all that. That's kind well, of This, this forgery fooled, fooled uh, a lot of people. And yeah, um, in that day, yeah. they thought, yeah, okay. The, the masonry, this is proof that masonry came back from an earlier period and was connected with the occult just yeah. as just as they thought so the, the, the next one 43e bear shows that the closest parallel to lucy's phraseology isn't the leland manuscript or masonic sources but rather henry dana ward's 1828 freemasonry its pretensions exposed in faithful extracts of its standard authors which sheds light on how Masonic publications of the Leland manuscript were being perceived. He poked fun at the inability of Freemasonry, Freemasonry's, this is Ward, poked fun at the inability of Freemasonry's central character to save himself through the magic mentioned in the Leland manuscript. Ward wondered why Hiram Abiff, the master of the art of foresaying, did not foresee his danger. The master of the art of wonder working did not even draw a magic circle. The master of the way of winning the faculty of Abrek did not utter a syllable of magic, did not spit one mouthful of fire, did not make the slightest attempt to conjure a spirit to his rescue. So you hear, um, the book was uh, aver also advertised in the Wayne Sentinel, L Ward's book. On uh, mm -hmm. the 4th of, 4th of September, 1829, later, the same book, Ward quotes the Leland manuscript and adds, the faculty of Abrek, in parentheses, adds magic. Uh, 
On page 153, he again follows the, uh, the phrase uh, faculty of Eberk with an abbreviation, Abracadabra, a magical word. He explains Abrac as an abbreviation of Abracadabra, oh, abracadabra a yeah. magical word. As so, a magic. uh -huh. so it's ma it's connected to magic, even though the Masons are inventing this phrase, faculty of Abrac. It might have been around, but it seems like it, in the subject that we're discussing, this is a origin of the phrase. Interesting. Now the next slide. Oh, here, turn, back back to where you were. Okay. Um. So you can see here that uh, the Leland manuscript and Lucy's being compared, and uh, believe, it doesn't yeah. have all the phrases, but the ward has all three phrases that Lucy uses. Um. Okay. So the next one. Yeah. So you were saying earlier the with the when the faculty of Abrac, the faculty of Abrac is a Gaelic. Yeah, uh, winning, winning is the word. Winning, yeah, winning, firing. So that's a real interesting way that Lucy was kind of tied into the uh, acculturation of it, huh? Huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She heard the phrase. She's using the phrase. Yeah. But We'll see why she's using the phrase. She's not really referring to masonry at all. Um, okay, okay, so the next one, Barris is a, his article is very important. Uh, Barrett, this is Barris. Ward mm -hmm. includes each of the forms of the magic listed by Lucy Smith. The three, there are three magic terms, even though the masons use faculty brick, which is a magic term. Uh, but no, they didn't talk about it. <laughs> they only quoted the Leland manuscript. Um, additionally, he includes conjuring and magic words that are also- Do we know what the magic words were, Dan? Do we know what those magic words are? You said something about three magic oh. words, right? Um. Or do we? I don't know. He Just includes conjuring and magic words that are also tied to folk magic and part of the Smith's magic relics like layman's, ceremonial dagger, and talisman. Ward equates abric with magic. No. Uh, you. <laughs> yeah. I didn't uh, write it all out. So, All right. It's all good. I don't remember what exactly uh claire is referring to here but this is what he states that it's ward is uh, ta talks about um magic in addition to so there were not only words but relics yeah 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 throughout his discussion uh -huh. throughout his book there's um, Ward knows about magic okay. a lot, a lot about magic. So uh, I'd, like, I'd like to get that Journal of Mormon History article and yeah. read it. fresh well, off the press. That's the best kind, huh? Yeah, it's uh, 
Which way? It's this one. Okay, we've got some confusion. Let's straighten this out while we can. Oh, yeah, Mormon history, the Journal of Mormon History. Oh, sorry. What, what's your point here? Are you saying that Lucy's use of the faculty of Abrac was a magic term rather than a Masonic term? Yes. Sarah's question. And Do you think it is exclusively a magic as opposed to no. a Masonic magic or, or Mason? Or am I confusing the issue? <laughs> Won't be the first time. <laughs> it's describing magic. It's not describing anything the Masons were doing. Okay, that's that's what we wanted to know. Masons uh, aren't running around uh, trying to win the faculty of Abrek. Um The Masons aren't, but Lucy Smith was. <laughs> Right. Yeah, we'll find out why. Oh, oh okay. Yeah, right. As we go. So Claire Barris again on the next one. Let's keep trucking here and see what the uh, next revelation shows us. Yeah. The okay. mid-18th century forged Leland manuscripts successfully implanted the con concept of secretive magical practices into Masonic ideology included was the Masonic unique phrase, winning the faculty of Abrek, also quoted by Lucy Smith. Okay. Henry Dane Awards, 1828, anti-Masonic treatment, reflects how the Leland manuscript concepts had been expanded to include the American magic culture of the 1820s, a quasi-Masonic magic blend into which the Smiths fit. Magic circles are not mentioned in the Mas Masonic sources, but are by Ward's 1820s overlay of esoteric folk culture onto the Leland forgery influenced Freemasonry. Lucy Smith may be reflecting the common vernacular of the treasure seeking folk magic realm from which Ward was also drawing. And he could also be referring to a specific magic family magic practices and perceptions with Joseph Smith as a soothsayer seer turning prophet using conjuring instructions from the magus that invoke abrek when attempting to control spirits within the magic circle so this is a Barris's conclusion Barris's summary in that article right so what he's alluding to is that it's part of the vocabulary, the vernacular of the time without knowing uh, the origin of the phrase even. Okay, so Lucy was responding to the accusations that her family was lazy. Money digging was considered an idle pastime. Despite the phrasing, all three accusations deal with folk magic, not masonry. No one accused the Smiths of wasting time with ma masonry. Lucy was being ironic and sarcastic, mocking her accusers with exaggerated language, not language she would use to, to describe what she did. She would not use the term soothsaying to describe what her family did. Now, this is uh, an article by Samuel Brown, reconsidering Lucy Max Smith's folk magic confession. 
in the Mormon Historical Studies, Volume 13, Spring, Fall 2012. So in Samuel Brown was uh, points out in this uh, article um, that the phrase winning the faculty of Abrek was popularized by Masons and anti-Masons, but it was still associated with magic. The Masons weren't trying to win the faculty of Abrek, as I said. It had no part of their ritual. It was something that was attributed to them in a forgery. The only evidence the authors offer on page 45 of their book is uh, to a uh, an, um, George F. Fort's 1881 uh, book that tries to connect uh, it makes a, tries to make a possible argument or connection between Abrick and the lost name. This leads uh, our author authors to speculate about a passage in the Mark Mason degree to Revelations 2.17 about the white stone and the new name. Then to Justice Smith's interpretation about the stone being a Urim and Thummim and the new name being the key word, which they connect to the lost word of Masonry. In a Facebook exchange, Barris said, because of the date of the source, 1881, um, used in the book, to tie the faculty of Abrek to trying to, to discerning the ineffable word. I omitted that reference in his, you know, in his article. I thought the date of that reference was too late to use to indicate how the term was understood by Masons in the 1820s or by anybody, really. Bear seems to be the more careful historian. So the next slide, so the conclusion is that Lucy's, Lucy's statement can't be used to establish that the Smiths mixed esotericism, folk magic, and masonry in their money-digging activities, or that they associated such activities with Enoch, and that the effort to find lo the lost name of God, the connotation the connections and speculations that Masonic author George F. Fort made in 1881 using the Leland forgery are not relevant. They're irrelevant. So that's my conclusion, that it's a term, uh, it's a, uh, a pejorative type term that Lucy gave to mock her critics, you know, like... The whole know, faculty of Abrak. Yeah, we, you know, she's saying we didn't waste our time going after the faculty of Abrig drawing magic circles or soothsaying. You know, these are the words of, of the critics, not hers. And uh, it could describe, in general terms, describe some people see it as a confession. Quinn saw it as a confession that the family indulged in this uh, and that they were familiar with the faculty of Abrek. But she's speaking in 1845, and she's using terms that she could have since learned, like the faculty of Everett, from that period mm -hmm. of time. Um, okay. Mm -hmm. So um, the authors also say uh, there's no, there's in a argument of silence, 
notably, no evidence has been found that any member of the Smith family carried a version of the abracadabra parchment amulet. So that's an argument of silence that they didn't, there's no proof that they uh, knew about the uh, abracadabra thing. Uh, they had no parchment because they had three other parchments, but one of them's not the abracadabra one. So therefore, it only leads to one other conclusion, they, they, they think. Instead, they were likely to have understood the faculty of abrec in light of esoteric writings of Freemasons, such as Albert Pike and George F. Fort. Well, both of these authors, the first one doesn't mention the faculty of Ebrick in the quote that they give anyway is 1871. But Fort is the one that tries to co connect it, uh, faculty, winning the faculty of Ebrick, thus understood signifies the means by which the lost word may be recovered. Okay. And you're saying what you're saying, George Fort was 1881? 1881. And that's why Barris yeah, says, yeah, 18 Barris says he knew about it, but he didn't use it because it was too far uh, after the Smiths. Okay. Interesting. Okay. I see your point. That's on page 45 and 46 of the book. Yes, where those references to Albert Pike and George F. Fort. Yes, are. yeah. Um, okay, it, but it's a too much to hang on a phrase. Too much weight for this small phrase that could be in the vernacular, the time for magic. Um, to make uh use it as evidence that way back in when they're money digging that that was part of their belief system and it wasn't just understood as magic um or this amulet it had a, it was connected to enoch and you know winning win, uh trying to discover the lost name that never gets discovered right yeah. or lost again seems a little convenient um so um the chapter ends with speculations about freemasonry saturating the collective unconscious of the nation and men intuitively feeling that something had been lost so this is all tapping into you know the collective unconscious. Where are you reading that at, Dan? 47? 47, yes. Sorry. Okay. Down no, at the bottom. It's Down all the good. Bottom. Okay, yeah, I see what you're doing. Okay, I see where you're at. Freemasonry's myth mythical history saturated the collective unconscious of the nation. Yeah. It provided a sense of con continuity with the past, appealing to the primitivist yearnings of many men who intuitively felt that something, perhaps spiritual, political, or personal innocence, had been lost. Masonry provided an allegorical background that spiritualized the physical act of treasure-seeking, 
prevalent in the communities in which the Smiths lived, digging in the earth represented an uh, exteriorization of the desire to recover something buried deep within. Like many men in ages of uncertainty, Joseph Smith Sr. certainly felt the sting of that which was lost and sought to restore it through the Masonic working of the faculty of Abrek. I think that's so. Your take on this is they're reading much. too much into it. Yep. Okay. All right. Interesting. All right. So that ends this chapter. And so we go to chapter three. And I think. Uh, are your slides? Did I did I miss some of your slides, or is are those? Uh, for the it, it's fifty two, page fifty two. Oh, okay, so it's in chapter three. Okay, cool. Yeah. Okay, excellent. Okay, so. And it's a, uh, so this chapter is on Morgan and his abduction and, and assumed a murder and not much to say here, except I have, uh, some complaint about the use of two sources in this chapter um, that they might think about revising. Um, so on page 52 is um, um, a quote from a book. Let's see. Um, 1884 book, but it's about John Whitney, who uh, one of the principal conspirators in the Morgan disappearance and relative of prominent early Mormon Newell K. Whitney, reported in, a, in later years that Morgan had been a halfway convert of Joe Smith, the Mormon, and had learned from him to see visions and dream dreams. You know, wow. Well, first, I don't understand why this this doesn't fit really with their thesis too much because uh, we have an, Morgan's an anti-Mason. And um, so I don't know exactly what he would be a convert of or what would bring them together, but that's the implication. That, that Morgan and Joseph Smith met each other. And this would be a unique source. So you have to be wary, first of all, a source without any other uh, support. Okay. Um, so if Morgan spent the spring of 1826 in Ontario County, he may have had a rare opportunity to become acquainted with Joseph Smith Jr. Why? In 1826, Joseph Smith is, um, you know, a treasure digger, you know? And right, right. So what would bring them together? But I don't think they ever came together, and I don't even think this source is saying that because there's a larger context to this source. 
that is kind of left out of the story. Um, and you're going to give us that context? Yeah, so show the slide here. Okay, let's go 52. to the slide. Oh, there you go. Is that the wrong one? Oh, yeah, it's okay. So this is Morgan's uh, abduction. Pretty cool. Uh, it is. I wonder, who took that, I wonder who took that picture. <laughs> and Joseph Smith uh, in Morgan Meeting um, is in this book, Rob Morris, William Morgan, or Political Anti-Masonry, Its Rise, Growth, and uh, Decadence, 1883, page 196, based on Morris's notes of his conversation with John Whitney in 1858 to 59, somewhere in there, about the abduction of Morgan. So from 1858, a conversation note, he kept notes, and then he published it in 1883. In describing moving uh, Morgan around in September 1826, Whitney reportedly said, uh, maybe... Uh, See if there's another slide. Okay. What's the next slide? I forget. Rob Morris, William Morgan, or Yeah, that's it. That's it. Is that the quote that you need? You just that's read. The, the quote I need. Um, during the day, it was reported to us at Lewiston that Morgan had gone into theatricals and was shouting and alarming the people in the vicinity. It was a common thing with the fellow, as the people of Batavia used to testify. He had delirium tremens, which is from drinking or yeah, withdrawal. Yeah, interesting, yeah. He couldn't, he couldn't endure to be left alone. His eyes hurt him terribly. He saw snakes in the apartment. And then the comment... He had been a halfway convert of Joe Smith, the Mormon, and had learned from him to see visions and dream dreams. Some dream dreams, interesting. Yeah. This is one of those unique outlier sources. No source of information, personal or otherwise, is given for this supposed pre-1826 meeting of Smith and the anti-Masonic Morgan. It would therefore be a mistake to place too much weight on it. Nevertheless, I think our authors have misread it. Morgan's hallucinations were apparently related to his alcohol withdrawal. And the comment about learning how to have visions and dream dreams from Joseph Smith seems more humorous than serious. What was Morgan, the anti-Mason, supposed to be a convert of? So I think this is just a humorous statement they know about, you know, he's seeing uh, snakes <laughs> in his apartment. And uh, so the guy makes this sarcastic remark. Yeah, the way I'm seeing your interpretation of this, it appears to me that this is kind of a kill two birds with one stone thing. He gets to uh, clobber Morgan as well as Joseph Smith here. Yeah. Well, they're familiar with Joseph Smith, the nearby Joseph Smith, yeah. the prophet. A nearby clown digging treasure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and claiming to see visions and getting gold plates. And so uh, he's a halfway convert of Joseph Smith. So now, what was 
was I'm just sorry, giving, I, giving lessons on visions <laughs> and stuff. I mean, I might have missed. I might have missed your reference. This okay? You're saying this Rob Morris in 1883 is that when this was written? No, it's supposedly written from notes, uh, and it's a longer uh, account uh, that John Whitney gave to Morris oh, in, around kidding. 1858 or 59. They spoke to each other and then he kept notes supposedly and then put the notes together in his 18 uh 84 book 84 yeah yeah, yeah. so i i just see it as a like a one of those humorous statements uh that has no real history behind it or anything okay but other than more, the fact that he made it and it's in his, yeah. It's yeah. His book. So I don't yeah. see a, uh, any need to take it seriously. Okay. Okay. And the next one, uh, is, uh, dealing with, uh, Lucinda Morgan, mm -hmm. Morgan's widow. And, this is on page uh, 62 to 63. Oh, I do have a slide for that. Is this it? Yeah. Put, okay. Awesome. Good okay. Looking. So, Good. so, um, the authors quote uh, Lucinda Morgan's statement when she's a widow at this time and they're offering to help her <clears throat> and <clears throat> as a charity group. Um, and uh, towards the end of the letter, she says she wants... Uh, Future gener in, in the total, she wants the total eradication of false Freemasonry. And the authors interpret this as her words seem, de in be seem indicative of a belief in spurious Masonry, which had become corrupted and needed to be eradicated while leaving open the possibility of a true and restored form of the craft. And I don't see her saying that at all. She's saying Freemasonry is false. This is a, the widow of an anti-Mason. And Morgan was total anti-Mason. <clears throat> it's like saying the total eradication of evil Freemasonry. You know, she's just saying Freemasonry is uh -huh. false, a false system. She wants the eradication of it. She, she then, but she does also say, in the letter, she calls masonry a merciless and cruel institution. She's talking about the whole institution, not. She's not making a distinction between spurious and and pure masonry. It, no one used it like that, especially an anti-mason. Never dis distinguished pure and. Spurious. It's 
George Oliver and his the like, referring to uh, the mystery cults of the of the idolatrous heathen nations as being off branches, becoming spurious forms of masonry, not okay. not the institution in the 1820s and 30s or 40s being divided right. somehow, some way between true and spurious masons. And in the book, they explain that they're taking the theory of spurious and pure masonry and applying it in a unique way to the Book of Mormon. Okay. Uh-huh. So there's no to to me to describe the widow of the, the anti-Mason martyr as uh, believing in true and spurious masonry just doesn't doesn't make any sense. Interesting. Yeah. I I see how you're arriving at your at your conclusion, um, yeah, uh, the total eradication of false Freemasonry, I mean, it killed her husband, and then it's a merciless and cruel institution, and she is talking about the institution, so, yeah, I, I see. There's, no, there's no implication here. They're reading, they're reading into this source what they need to see to make it seem like spurious masonry is being discussed by anti-masons yeah interesting okay very good so uh should we stop there or you should we continue yeah yeah we've gone uh-huh we've we've you've covered a lot of really interesting ground i i have really enjoyed this i like I like how you're going through the book and sharing uh, other extra historical sources or getting to the historical sources that the authors use and putting it on screen for us so that we can kind of follow along and keep track because your depth in the history is so really awesome that it's fun for us to be able to follow along with your view and, and how the sources work and all that. So yeah, this has been really awesome. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for sharing your time and knowledge. This is uh, spectacular. Now, we've we've kind of talked behind the scenes, and you've mentioned that uh, we want next to approach the first vision, and yeah. you also want to discuss the Book of Mormon ideas that they, the authors, Bruno and Latursky and Swick, discuss in their book. And so we probably got two two more potentially three more meets i do have an announcement i'd like to make to my audience however next weekend uh i'm going to have tim rathbone yes the tim rathbone in our chat our beloved tim rathbone on the show next week at this time and he's got a lot of inside history and and methodology of the church history department at BYU in Salt Lake that we will talk about next week. And then uh, the Sunday after next week, we will bring back Dan and uh, 
we will you want to do the first vision next time dan is yeah. that's first the vision at least yeah i'm mostly interested in getting up to uh the coming forth of the book the first vision the coming forth of the book of mormon and the contents of the book of mormon um, so that would be five chapters five and six in the book for those of you who have it and you can read ahead of time yeah yeah okay excellent yeah so we will do that and in the meantime let me also remind you the backyardprofessor.org has new podcasts available for your listening and uh Let's see. I'm going to be on again. I might next Saturday, I might be out there videoing some of the pleasant mountains around me and uh, then making a, another nature video. I do have a new video up uh, on the program and I had my early, my discussion of Sunday school this morning about the church leadership and the, the, the problem with the methodology of the church is that they are not changing it. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, after a while you have to say, uh, holy cow, man, you got to do something different, but they keep doing the same thing. And uh, actually, I'm really glad to have Dan here because his high volumes. Now, I'm, I'm going to gossip a little bit here. I honestly can't remember who it was that was talking to me. It was one of the prominent Mormon apologists. This was quite a while ago. And he said, uh, the, the history department at BYU uh, is really not happy that Dan Vogel scooped him with this kind of a powerhouse historical source of these five books on the early Mormonism and the documents related to early Mormonism. And that was actually the swift kick in the butt that Vogel gave the history department to tell the brethren almost as it were, we don't give a fly and flip what you think our credibility. We must improve our sagging credibility and this was the impetus for the joseph smith papers um i admit it's gossipy i i i can't be sure that so take it with a grain of salt but i have talked to others who say that series of books so that's why i made such a big deal dan about you letting us know it's at archive.org and now we all have access to that source so that we can double and triple check any uh article or book on early Mormonism, and that is vital to do in these days. Unfortunately, because we do know the track record and we do recognize that the methodology has not necessarily changed all that much, even since producing the Joseph Smith Papers, which is a magnificent leap forward. I give the church full credit for that. I'm not trying to scream sour grapes here. That's fabulous that they're doing that. The downside that I was demonstrated, well, shown this morning or talked about is the cost. The upside is they're absolutely fantastic books uh, for a historian, if a historian can afford this. I can't afford every single book so I'm kind of being picky and choosy, et cetera. But some of them are a hundred bucks. Uh, that's way, that's way pricey. But so just saying, 
this is my way of saying thank you, Dan Vogel, for all your all of your continual contribution. I mean, for the last several decades, uh, you are the historian's historian, and we greatly appreciate your time and efforts. So, in the meantime, you guys, we're going to close out. Do you, do you have any closing words you'd like to say, Dan? Well, thanks for coming and listening. And uh, I hope that uh, I have served the historical community. Yep. Very good. Very good. We will be back next week with Tim Rathbone on the hot seat. And then the week after, we will jump back on Dan Vogel. So in the meantime, remember, be good, do well, have fun, work hard, sleep well, make lots of friends, smile. It makes people wonder what you're up to. And we are going to ski daddle. We love y'all, but we got to go. It's been a blast.